Hello and welcome to the Immunet podcast, a place for educational rheumatology content to improve research and patient care. If you're too busy to read the Immunet newsletters and the win contributions, this podcast is exactly for you. Now, you can get updated whilst on the go. This is October 2020's edition of What is New? Here we highlight 10 new publications in the field of rheumatology. My name is Chris Winkup, recording from University College London in the United Kingdom, and I'm your host for this month's edition of What is New. First up in this month's edition is Rheumatoid Arthritis Basic and Translational Research, and the paper selected is from Science Advances, it's a research article entitled Synoviacite Targeted Therapy Synergizes with TNF Inhibition in Arthritis Reversal. So first of all, this is a really interesting study looking predominantly in mouse models. If you read this month's submission, you'll see that there is an argument for the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis still not being fully optimized. And whilst a combination of biologic agents may be appealing, there is currently too much risk in terms of infection side effects. So in this study, uh, the authors sought to investigate the use of a non-immunosuppressive fibroblast-like synoviacite targeting drug. Now the group identified this candidate target, which is a transmembrane tyrosine phosphatase stigma, which is expressed within the nervous system as well as on plasmacide dendritic cells, which have been implicated in a number of autoimmune rheumatic conditions. So in this study, the authors uh, constructed a fusion protein that was able to selectively inhibit the migration and invasion of rheumatoid arthritis fibroblast-like synovocytes, whilst interestingly not affecting those derived uh, from osteoarthritis uh, or uh, dermal fibroblasts. And in this study, the authors were able to demonstrate that the expression of these transmembrane tyrosine phosphatase stigmas was downregulated by TNF, and they showed synergy when used in combination with a murine homologue of a tanacept. And one of the really interesting findings of this study was that when they used suboptimal doses of both of these agents together, they could effectively inhibit arthritis. So what could this mean for clinical practice in the future? Well, this certainly represents an interesting avenue of novel therapeutic target, in particular, given the added benefit that this does not cause significant immunosuppression. And staying on the subject of rheumatoid arthritis, we now move to look at our submission for clinical research. And this is a paper from Arthritis and Rheumatology entitled Anti-Citrullinated Protein Antibody Specificities, Rheumatoid Factor Isotypes and Incident Cardiovascular Events in Patients with Rheumatoid Arthritis. Now, as is well known and has been mentioned on previous podcasts, rheumatoid arthritis is a disease that is associated with a significant increased risk of cardiovascular events. There has previously been suggestions that widespread systemic inflammation and also anti-citrullinated protein antibodies can enhance atherogenesis in rheumatoid arthritis. 
To investigate this further, the authors of this study decided to look at specific anti-citrullinated protein antibodies and rheumatoid factor isotypes to look for an association with the incidence of cardiovascular events in a group of Swedish patients with new onset rheumatoid arthritis. And in the context of this study, new onset was classified as within one year of the onset of symptoms. Patients followed up on this nationwide register were then subsequently assessed for new onset cardiovascular disease. Impressively, 2,814 patients were recruited to the study with a median follow-up duration of 13 years. Now, vascular events and deaths were reported in 375 patients and they found that the anti-CCP2 positivity was associated with increased risk of acute coronary syndrome with a hazards ratio of 1.46 and stroke with a hazard ratio of 1.47. When considering rheumatoid factor, it was the IgM isotype that was associated with all cardiovascular endpoints except for acute coronary syndromes. IgA isotype rheumatoid factor was associated with cardiovascular deaths, and after adjustment for smoking and other lifestyle factors, only IgA rheumatoid factor remained associated with cardiovascular death with a hazard ratio of 1.61. Now it's important to consider that these results show association, but this may imply that those with positive antibodies should perhaps have their cardiovascular risk treated more aggressively in clinical practice. And it'll be certainly interesting to see whether these results are validated in other such cohorts. Next up, we looked at systemic lupus erythematosus basic and translational research. And this month's submission is featured in Lupus Science and Medicine and is entitled Targeting Mitochondrial Oxidative Stress with MitoQ reduces net formation and kidney disease in lupus-prone MRL-LPR mice. First of all, I've got a conflict of interest here. This was the paper that I selected for this month's WIN initiative. Uh, and also, my own research focuses on mitochondrial function in lupus. However, I think this paper is really fascinating. Now, there's been a number of recent studies that have looked at abnormal immune metabolism in lupus. And in this paper, the authors investigated lupus murine models and whether mitochondrial function could be treated with the antioxidant MitoQ. Now, when the mice were treated with MitoQ, they were found to have reduced neutrophil reactive oxygen species and a reduction in net formation, which was something I discussed in last month's podcast. Another exciting finding from this study was that mice treated with MitoQ also had fewer immune complexes within their kidneys, uh, although there was no difference in the levels of circulating autoantibodies within the serum of the mice. So this is quite exciting and shows that mitochondrial function does occur in lupus and there is a potential treatment for this. So I'll be interested to see if this can be translated into human studies at some point in the future. Staying with lupus, but again, looking at this month's clinical research selection, we have a paper from Annals of the Rheumatic Diseases entitled Interferon Alpha Kenoid in Systemic Lupus Erythematosus, results from a phase 2b randomized placebo-controlled study. Now, this really builds on uh, the huge 
wealth of data that is coming out in lupus looking at interveron signatures uh, in the pathogenesis of systemic lupus erythematosus. And if you remember from last month's podcast, the study in that occasion was on the positive findings of a study looking at anephrolimab. Now in this phase 2b study, patients with moderate to severe SLE were randomized to receive either intramuscular injections of an immunotherapeutic vaccine, which was an interferon alpha kenoid or a placebo. And these were given at 0, 1, 5, 12 and 24 weeks. Interestingly, the primary endpoints of this study were the neutralization of interferon gene signatures and also the clinical outcome score of the modified Biclar response by mandatory corticosteroid tapering. 185 patients were included, of which 93 received placebo and 92 received the interferon alpha kenoid treatment. Importantly, and unfortunately, there was no statistically significant difference between the two groups at 36 weeks based upon the modified Biclar response. However, a few benefits were seen in the patients who received the study drug, uh, and this did include a reduction in the interferon gene signature. Furthermore, there was a significant ability of the drug to allow for steroid sparing, which is incredibly useful in lupus. And as the authors point out in this study, it's important that we should maybe rethink our choice of primary outcomes in SLE trials. Now, moving on to the submissions for what is new spondyloarthritis and psoriatic arthritis section. And first of all, we'll consider the basic and translational research. The paper highlighted here is entitled Changes in Bone Formation Regulation Biomarkers in Early Axial Spondyloarthritis, and this was a recent study published in Rheumatology. When thinking about the pathogenesis of axial spondyloarthropathies, new bone formation and the development of syndesmophytes are hallmarks of the disease. Pathologically, this phenomenon includes wingless type-like signaling and bone morphogenic proteins. In this study, the authors prospectively identified markers and regulators of new bone formation in earlier axial spondyloarthropathies. And an interesting finding was that serum BMP7 increased over the five-year follow-up period, and this was most pronounced in those with active disease whilst this phenomenon was interestingly less pronounced in those on anti-TNF therapy. Now, the interesting applications from this study are that possibly by measuring serum bone formation biomarkers such as BMP7, uh, we may be able to more easily identify active disease and monitor response in particular uh, where, with this being suppressed by TNF inhibition. This month's spondyloarthropathy clinical research submission is entitled Effectiveness of Switching Between TNF Inhibitors in Patients with Axial Spondyloarthritis. Is the reason to switch relevant? And this is published recently in Arthritis Research and Therapy. 
In this study, the authors sought to compare the efficacy of tumor necrosis factor inhibitors as both first-line and second-line therapies, in addition to assessing whether the reasons for discontinuing the first agent affects the response to the second agent in patients with axial spondyloarthropathy. Now, this study has quite a long follow-up time. Patients were recruited from 2008 to 2018 from the Rheumatic Diseases Portuguese Register, uh, with a particular focus on those who discontinued their first anti-TNF and started a second anti-TNF agent over that time period. Reasons for discontinuing first anti-TNF agent included primary failure, for example, in which case there was no achievement of control of disease, secondary failure, in which there was an initial improvement which was subsequently lost at future visits, and other reasons for discontinuing, for example, pregnancy and conception, or due to surgery. The authors found that the reason for discontinuing the first TNF agent did not influence the response to the second TNF agent. However, a difference was found when more stringent outcome measures were assessed. For example, those patients who discontinued their first anti-TNF drug due to secondary failure seem to do better when switching to the second agent than those with primary failure. Now, this is an important finding for clinical practice, as with a number of newer agents being available for axial spondyloarthropathy, those with primary failure to anti-TNF may be switched to a non-anti-TNF biologic as a second-line agent on the basis of these results, which clearly need to be validated in other cohorts first. Moving on now to look at osteoarthritis. In October's submission, we have a paper from Scientific Reports entitled Serum Fatty Acid Chain Length Associates with Prevalent Symptomatic End-Stage Osteoarthritis Independent of BMI. Now, this study was conducted in a large Dutch cohort of 1,564 cases of osteoarthritis and 2,125 healthy controls. The basis for this study is to consider whether there are factors beyond simple mechanical loading that could play a role in the pathogenesis of osteoarthritis. This study found some interesting features to report an abnormal metabolic state in patients with osteoarthritis as fatty acid chain length was noted to be associated with both the overall radiographic osteoarthritis and also end-stage osteoarthritis of the hip and knee and this was defined as indication for joint replacement surgery. Thinking more broadly this could be suggestive as a component of poor metabolic health in a certain group of patients with osteoarthritis and the authors do mention that osteoarthritis is more highly associated with patients with an elevated BMI. Moving on to look at the submission for paediatric rheumatology for this month. This was taken from the Journal of Rheumatology and is a study entitled Biologic Switching Among Non-Systemic Juvenile Idiopathic Arthritis Patients, a cohort study in the Childhood Arthritis and Rheumatology Research Alliance Registry. Now, it's well known that the advent of biologic therapy has led to significant improvements in the quality of life and disease control of children and young people with juvenile idiopathic arthritis. 
with the advent of newer biologic agents, young patients often switch from one biologic to another in an attempt to aggressively control disease before the development of joint damage, which clearly in younger patients will have significant impacts for later life. This large registry study looked at 1,361 eligible children uh, with juvenile idiopathic arthritis who were due to start biologic therapy. Now, 94% of these patients, unsurprisingly, were starting anti-tumor necrosis factor drugs as their first-line treatment over a median period follow-up time of 30 months. 26% of these young patients switched to another biologic agent. The study reports that the most common switch was from an initial etanercept regime to another tumor necrosis factor inhibitor in the first instance. The study concluded that one in four patients with JIA switched to a second line biologic agent. The study also reported that the time to switching significantly decreased over recent years thus highlighting a possibly more aggressive approach to the management of the disease. The patient education and patient perspective submission for this month was taken from Arthritis Care and Research in this paper entitled Clinical Team Perspectives on the Psychosocial Aspects of Transition to Adult Care for Patients with Childhood Onset Systemic Lupus Erythematosus. Now there's been recent increased emphasis on the transition of young patients from pediatric rheumatology to adult rheumatology. And this timely study interviewed a number of members of the healthcare team. In particular, this was four pediatric rheumatologists along with four adult rheumatologists, two nurses, a nurse practitioner, a social worker, and psychologist. So this really did get uh, a good spread of opinions from the clinicians and members of the MDT involved in transition of young patients with juvenile or pediatric onset SLE. One interesting finding of the study was that adult clinicians seemed to place extra emphasis on independence for the long-term success of patients. So this is a really important study for anyone who's involved in the transition of young patients from pediatric to adult care as it does highlight the ways in which the team can function differently. And the final submission to review for this month is the epidemiology submission published in Lupus Science and Medicine entitled Transition to Severe Phenotype in Systemic Lupus Erythematosus Initially Presenting with Non-Severe Disease, Implications for the Management of Early Disease. So this is an interesting study uh, on the basis that many patients with lupus can present with very heterogeneous symptoms. Some patients may present early with aggressive disease, either that involving the brain or initially presenting with lupus nephritis. Whilst on the other hand, some patients may present with a more mild phenotype initially. What this study sought to investigate was whether there was a change in disease phenotypes over time. The patients in this study were divided into either having mild disease, this was on the basis of very low BILAG assessment scores with no major organ involvement, and a glucocorticoid dose of less than 10 milligrams a day with the addition of hydroxychloroquine. 
it was subsequently found that approximately 50% of the patients who had initially presented with this mild disease went on to develop moderate or even severe phenotypes of the disease over time, with approximately one-third of the patients with moderate disease uh, at the time of diagnosis progressing to severe disease later in their illness. And it was suggested the warning signs to look at it for are elevated anti-DSDNA antibody levels, male sex and neuropsychiatric symptoms. So applications for clinical practice, well, uh, for patients who are coming to clinic as a new diagnosis with relatively mild symptoms, if they've got DNA antibodies and are male, you may want to be keeping a closer eye out to see if they go on to develop a more severe phenotype as time progresses. And so that's the end of this episode of the Emunet podcast. We really hope you enjoyed this show and found the content useful. For more information on the highlighted studies, go to the Emunet website, emunet.ular.org. And you can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook, where the submissions are regularly kept up to date and uploaded throughout the month. And there's also additional information on other educational content and research opportunities. Thanks so much for tuning in.